Well, good morning. Why don't we start in prayer? Gracious Father, thank you again for your faithfulness towards us, for your generosity. Forgive us those times where uh, we make ourselves more important than you and, and then our brothers and your call on our lives and the mission that you've called us to. Give us grace to repent and to work heartily as unto you and to go forth in the strength that only you can provide. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time, that you would grant us clarity and you'd help us to understand more clearly again how we can walk worthy of the call that we've been called to. In Jesus' name. So as, as you can probably tell, uh, this class is called Time Well Spent. And so hopefully by the end of it, we'll have some ideas on how we can evaluate how to know when the time has been well spent. Um, there's a man by the name of Stephen Covey. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He wrote a book called uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That one was pretty popular, so I guess he wrote another book, and it's called First Thing First. It's a leadership book. Um, and in it, he tells this story that I, I think will be a good starting point for us as we consider uh, what a believer wants to think about when they're, they're stewarding the time that they have. So this is a story of what an expert does when he goes in and he talks to this class of business students. And he says, as this man stood in front of the group of high-powered overachievers, he said, okay, time for a quiz. Then he pulled out a ga one gallon wide mouth mason jar and set it on a table in front of him. Then he poured out a dozen fist sized rocks and carefully placed them one at a time into the jar. When the jar was filled to the top and no more rocks would fit inside, he asked, is this jar full? Everyone in the class said yes. Then he said, really? He reached under the table and pulled out a bucket of gravel. Then he dumped some of the gravel in and shook it and the jar causing pieces of gravel to work themselves down into the spaces between the big rocks. Then he smiled and asked the group one more time, is the jar full? By this time, the class was on to him. Probably not, one of them answered. Good, he replied. And he reached under the table and brought up a bucket of sand. He started dumping sand in, and it went into all the spaces left between the rocks and the gravel. Once more, he asked the question, now is the jar full? No, they shouted. Once again, he said, good. Then he grabbed a pitcher of water and began to pour it until the jar was filled to the brim. Then he looked up at the class and asked, what's the point of this illustration? So one eager beaver raised his hand and said, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can fit more things into it. <laughs> and no, the speaker said, that's not the point. The truth that's illustrated by this is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. And so as we consider what believers, I mean, we have this ridiculous freedom in Christ. We don't have to do anything in order to be saved. We've got a generous Savior and who's given us our life and given us everything. As we consider what we should do with our lives, we, we, we want to think about what are the really big things. And so we're going to walk through the parable of the talents. Many of you heard it. Um, and see if we can gain some clarity on, on how we might prioritize those things and how we might deal with them. So the uh, parable of the talent that I'm using is the Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. The context is um, the disciples are beginning to understand that Jesus is going to go away and that he's going to return. So as you might expect, they want to know how they'll know when he's coming back. So they ask him for the signs that will be there to demonstrate that he's about to return. So he tells them some of the signs, and then he warns them that no one will ever know the time. And he tells them that the faithful servant is the one who's found doing what his master calls him to 
when the master returns. After that, beginning in verse, or the beginning in chapter 25, we see the parable of the ten virgins. So these ten virgins were waiting for the bridegroom to start the celebration feast. Five of them were foolish. They didn't have enough oil to, to stay there. So when the bridegroom came, they were gone because they had to go back and get some oil. And so again, the reminder here is that we need to be vigilant and ever faithful. And so that's where we pick up on the parable of the talents. So Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we start at the beginning. Verse 14 says, For it would be like a man going on a journey. Well, we know, because of the context of this, that the man that's being pictured here is Christ. So the master in this, uh, this parable is going on a journey. And we, we see that he's a very wealthy master. And again, that, that pictures to us Christ. And he entrusts with them his property. So the master gives to each of his servants generously of his property. And again, we see that that's a picture of Christ. And we know that everything in the heavens and earth is the Lord. So we understand that everything is God's and, and has been entrusted to us. And in 1 Corinthians 4 and 7, we, we get a warning that we get to confuse that any of this stuff is ours. And he says, for who makes you superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So it, from the very beginning of this, we see the importance of remembering uh, that when we're stewarding these things, all of these things are our masters. In verse 15, it says, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now at first glance, we see that and we go, wow, that, that doesn't seem fair. We, we are in a society where we're constantly comparing ourselves to one another, and we go, yeah, wait, he got more than, than I got. 
And if we do that, we're going to miss a couple of really important messages, a couple of really important points. The first point is that this master is demonstrating wise stewardship. So this master, rather than randomly distributing what he's entrusted to, wherever it would go, he's looking at the ability of his servants to be good stewards of what he's giving them. He's looking to see that those who are most productive have the opportunity with the most. So the, with the one who has the greatest ability, he says, here, here are five talents. To the one with uh, lesser ability, he says, here's two talents. And one with the lesser ability, he says, here's one talent, because he's demonstrating to us how we ought to consider when we are being a steward. And we see this principle a lot, where it's not just random. I mean, even though our salvation is a gift that we will never deserve, we also understand that whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much. And we see that when we are considering even uh, leadership in the church, there's a requirement that you've demonstrated your ability to lead well in your home prior to having the ability or the capability of being a leader in the church. So we see that that's a scriptural concept that happens. And we use it ourselves. I mean, who, when given the option between two people, will give the job to the one with the least ability? Exactly. So what we miss by kind of getting stuck on the notion of fairness is that he's actually demonstrating us how we ought to steward as well, how we can make the most of what we have. Another thing is if we flip this, we can kind of see an opportunity for us to check ourselves. So if our loving, sovereign, divine God, who is in control of everything, has decided that we don't have something, one of the questions that we might have, ask ourselves is, do I not have more of this, or do I not have this, because I've not demonstrated faithful stewardship? And where we can see this kind of pop up is I've heard time and time again that I don't have enough money to make a budget. And, and the way that we see that on the flip side is I'm too busy to take the time to plan what I'm going to do. And I work at the city of Carlsbad, and I was meeting with a manager, and he's, we were sitting down and discussing these things, and he said, look, I already know that I have too much that has to get done this week for me to take any time to figure out what I'm going to do. And so the thinking is that, okay, I'm too busy, I can't possibly do this. But what the question is, if you know that something really important isn't going to get done this week, do you want to wait until Friday to know that? Or do you want to know that now? So these are ways that we can kind of say, okay, if I don't have time to do this, am I stewarding my time well? Am I running out of time because I'm not utilizing it well? Another thing we would miss, again, if we get stuck on the fact that, okay, they didn't get the same thing across the board, is the fact that a talent is a tremendous gift. So a talent is a unit of weight, it's about 94 pounds, and in this scenario, it would describe about 94 pounds of a currency. So depending on which scholar you talk to, that could be up to 20 years of someone's wages. So even the person who received only one talent received 20 years of wages, which should be enough for a couple of days, right? So when we look at that and we go, well, but it's not two and it's not five, but it is still generous. It is still 20 years of wages. And then the final thing that we miss is God is sovereign. He doesn't actually owe us anything. He can do with his things whatever he pleases. And so when we get stuck on that, we miss his sovereign control. And, and Romans 12, 6 shows us, again, uh, we have different gifts 
according to the grace that given us. So he, he gives us gifts according to the grace that he also gives us. But all of this is his, and so we don't look to compare ourselves to others when we consider these things. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So, so also, he who had received two talents made two talents more. So one of the things that pops out of this is the sense of urgency. It says at once he went and traded. At once he became busy. We can see that these guys were immediately about their master's business. There was a sense that they knew that they couldn't presume. Again, they didn't know when he was going to return. Uh, and they also didn't know when they were going to be able to be productive and when maybe things weren't going to go so well. They didn't presume against the future. So they actively begin working. And for us, we know we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when Christ is going to return. So we might want to consider that as well. Now, we can look at this, and we, we can kind of get stuck on the fact that they both doubled their money. And we can say, okay, that's the point, doubling your money. But we need to remember that it's God who gives the increase. It's God who gives us the ability to make wealth. So we don't get stuck on that, but rather consider what we can do with whatever we have and see how God will, will bless that. And one of the things that kind of jumps up is this, is, okay, I, I can see how you can increase your money, but, but how would you increase your time? You know, we, God numbers our days, and he's going to guarantee we're out of here when he wants us out of here. So how can you increase your time? And again, you see the genius of God's sovereign will, his decree that we go and make disciples. And we, because when we teach others and we encourage them to spend their time in the service of our shared master, in essence, we are extending our time. We are multiplying our time. So we can consider that as we are looking at dealing with our time. Verse 18, that he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, we don't know when he started, but there's a sense that he actually did some work as well. He dug in the ground. It wasn't productive. It was counterproductive, but he did do some work. And we kind of look at the fact, uh, we, we kind of wonder, was he jealous? Was he kind of like maybe I would have been? If he looks at the person who got five talents and says, that guy doesn't deserve that promotion, I mean, that five talents, um, he looks at the person with two talents and says, that person doesn't deserve that car. I mean, those, those two talents. Does he look at those guys and say, because I don't have those things, then I'm not going to do anything with that? We don't know. There is a telling, there's a parable in Luke 19 that is very similar to this. It's the parable of the Minas. And in that parable, we see a nobleman going away and he's going to be made king. And he, the, his servants so didn't want him to be king that they sent a delegation afterwards to say, okay, please stop this man from being our king. It failed. He came back. He held them accountable for the money that he'd given them. And the ones that did nothing with their money uh, were treated as those who were enemies of him. So perhaps when we're looking at this, uh, this servant, we're seeing an act of defiance. We're, saying, we're seeing, you can't tell me what to do with my energy. You can't tell me what to do with this. We don't know exactly. It's not told there, but those are things to consider. But we do know that in Matthew 12, 30, it says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So anyone who's not in the active service of this master is against him. And we see that this person, the, the results of his efforts, his work didn't result in productivity. It just guaranteed that no one would receive the benefit of his master's gift. 
And that includes his master, and it may have been especially his master. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. So we see it's a long time. We may be here for a while. We may be gone tomorrow, but we may be here for a, will, a, a long time. But we, and we know the importance of perseverance that we see demonstrated here. We see in the parable of the foolish virgins how they weren't set up for the long game. They maybe have started well, um, but then they had to go back because of their foolishness. So we see, again, the importance of perseverance. And again, we're reminded of the truth that's in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but concerning that day, concerning the day when he will return, no one knows that hour, not even, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Right, going to verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Wait, who doesn't want to hear that? So he hears that, and he says, You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over a much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master gives him these gifts, and he bases on the ability that we know was given by the master. He commends him on his faithful service, and then he gives him more and invites him to enter his joy. Uh, Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see again here, size doesn't matter, whether it's five talents or two talents. In the parable of the minas, he gave them each one mina, and they came back with differing amounts, and the response was essentially the same, well done. So we know that his size isn't the, the, the factor. And when we do this, we can remember that we will be evaluated by the faithfulness that we demonstrate with whatever God has given us regardless of how big that is or how small that is. So we needn't be concerned with what our brother and sister is accomplishing. We, we need to be concerned with stewarding what God has called us to do. And that should breed contentment, and it also should breed confidence, because again, this isn't a competition. This is simply faithful stewardship. And this also, again, we see that the master has come back, and they have been working, and it reminds us of what we see in Galatians 6, 9, and it says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Uh, Verse 24. He also who had received one talent came forward and saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid hid it in the ground. Here have what is yours. It's kind of hard to read that last line without the sense that he's throwing it back at him. Here have what is yours, but we'll try to step back from that. What we do see, though, is we see a picture of a hard master. And we look back at the, the previous part of the parable, and we go, okay, wait, this generous person who uh, gives people the, 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 need, the means they need to receive or, or succeed, he gives them uh, these things the best shot at success. When they do what he expects that they can do, he commends them. He gives them more. And then he invites them to the, into his joy. And we go, that's a picture of a hard master? But nonetheless, he has it because he ignores the fact that his master has been generous to him. Other than that, he, he impugns the master's character. He says there's a sense that he's saying the master is asking for something that the master doesn't deserve. 
He says, you reap where you didn't sow, and you gather where you scattered no seed. And again, this is ignoring the fact that he did sow. He did give the talent. He gave him everything that he would need to have reaped when he returned. But regardless of how he twisted this master's character, he came to this notion that, well, I, I was afraid. And we can kind of look at that and go, wow, that's a bad thing. And we, we know that fear can be a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing. My son, I hopefully, fears the, the uh, grill now. He's burned his hands pretty bad, so hopefully he stays away from that. We also see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But this servant used that fear to make sure, again, that no one would receive, would receive the benefit of the gift that he'd been given by the master. So verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Now at first glance, you go, whoa, I guess he was right. Because that's, that's pretty harsh. The, the, the guy was afraid. And again, in our culture, we, we tend to highlight those emotions, those kind of things, and we go, yeah, don't, don't come down on him. But again, we would remiss, we'd miss the fact that his master simply sees that this is just an excuse. The master is aware of Proverbs 26 and 13. And he says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. The master understands this is an excuse not to work. And as we consider, again, this excuse, we need to consider our own fears that uh, prevent us from working, our own fears that prevent us from improving and growing. There's, there's a fear of failure. What if I try this and it doesn't work? Uh, there's a fear of embarrassment, like I'm standing up in front of a Sunday school class and I forget something. Um, what if there's a fear of going in the wrong direction? You know, I can't do this because I'm not sure that that's the perfect way to go. And then there's also the fear of legalism. Now, we know that legalism is the understanding that you, you earn your salvation. There's some amount of works that you can do to, to be righteous for God, and we know that that's wrong. But sometimes we expand that definition to include anything that feels like hard work. So we change hard work into bondage. And we say that, that okay, this is, if you have to work too hard, and this is a bad thing, it's legalism. But in Galatians, which is the book where, where Paul is describing our freedom that we have in Christ and the foolishness of trying to work out uh, to, to fulfill the law in order to be saved, in that same book, he explains to us in Galatians 5 and 13, for you were called to freedom, brother. So he reminds you, you are free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So even though we are free and there is no requirement that we observe the law, we are, be, we are made free to serve one another. We are made free to expand the kingdom. And we're reminded in Romans 13 that we can, if we ignore the authority that God's given the government, we are using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. But ultimately, we're reminded, again, in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, the, the, the foolishness of this notion that hard work is, is bondage and legalism, because it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see not only is fear actually how we should be working this out, there's a level of exertion here that is tremendous. Fear and trembling is how hard we should work, not because we think it's going to save us, because it can't, we know that, but because we're empowered 
and enabled by God to do that and to do so to do the works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, to do those things for his glory. So we don't have to be concerned about this. We can be free to expend our whole life never once worrying if it'll be good enough because we know that it won't, but it will be by God's grace for his glory. Another thing that we do is when we, we expand the notion of legalism, we, we make condemnation, and we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We make condemnation to be the same thing as conviction or any bad feeling. So if I have a bad feeling, then I'm, I'm being condemned. But they're not the same thing. Conviction is essentially godly sorrow. Uh, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's the reminder that we are doing something wrong. It is never for the purpose of punishment. We are never being judged, but we are being corrected. We remember that our God is as a loving Father, and He does discipline us. So He will cause us to be uncomfortable. He will convict us when we continue in the wrong path. And we see pictures of this in, with David, with Bathsheba. He was broken over this sin. So we know that it is not inappropriate for a believer to be broken over their sin. But we also see that there's a, good there's a proper response and the wrong response. So the response to conviction is what we see with Peter. So after he denies Christ three times, he's broken. He is, he's busted up. But we see that he repents and he returns to the point where he will not deny Christ even unto death. On the flip side, we see condemnation. We see Judas, who after betraying Christ, there was no hope for him. He, was simply, he simply hung himself. And so since, again, we know that God disciplines us, we should look for those things. We should not be surprised. We should not be lethargic as we try to, to grow. First uh, Peter 3, 7 gives us an example of what husbands need to look out for. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are your heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So again, this isn't condemnation. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wives, or you're done. It simply says, these are the consequences. This is how your heavenly father might discipline you in this scenario. So do not be confused if you are unhappy or sad and treating your wife in an unloving way. Don't be concerned about your salvation. Be concerned about the fact that you're simply disobeying a loving father who will not leave you to your sin. Uh, so again, those are three aspects as we consider our fear of going so far that we, are, we ended up in legalism. Uh, verse 27. So the master asked him, says, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So the master asks him a rhetorical question. He says, if, if this is what you thought, then this should have been your response. And in doing so, he, he dismantles the response. He, he uncovers the fact that this is just an excuse. And as we look at this, again, we have to ask ourselves, would our excuses do any better? Uh, when we say, I didn't work heartily as under the Lord because I feared legalism, is that going to fare any better? When we say, I didn't meet that need because it's not something I'm gifted at, again, is that going to make muster? And if I didn't practice hospitality because my house isn't great, is that going to fit the bill? I'm guessing probably not. So verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him with 10 talents, who has 10 talents. 
For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will be, have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So again, we see another example of wise stewardship. We see someone who initially was given five talents, and they made ten talents. So if you were, were a businessman, you would probably invest more in that. You would say, wow, this person has demonstrated an ability to do really well with these funds. If my point, if my purpose is to be productive, then I would probably gear more towards that person. And then on the flip side, you see someone who it's been taken away from. You go, wow, he, he only had one and it's been taken away. But when we ask ourselves, if I had a servant, if I had an employee, if I had someone who I entrusted something to do and I saw that they wasted it, would I continue to give them more? Would I language what, or help them to hold on to what I had given them? Or would I say, okay, you know what? We're going to give this again to someone who will be a better steward of this. Because if our notion of this is, is faithful stewardship, that's what we would do. And then verse 30, and it says, And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, so though, we, again, we know that there's no amount of stewardship whatsoever that will ever save us, that can guarantee our salvation, can't do it. But when we read this, we should also see that this is from our Savior as a warning to us. And we should look at this and, and remember that, again, faith without works is dead. So let us not fall into that trap. And then again, looking at Galatians, where he has expounded the, the foolishness of trying to obey the law for salvation, he also says this, essentially that you can't live any way you want, uh, starting in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. It says, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, we know we cannot save ourselves. We can't do it. But we need to look at how we're living in light of these warnings and repent, first of all, of our, our, from our belief that uh, we haven't received everything from God and he gets to tell us what to do with it. And secondly, uh, repent of our notion that he doesn't actually deserve it. Because he, he does. So when we are considering this parable as believers and we're trying to make some sense of time management, what does that mean? Well, it means starting with the, the, the realization that everything is God's, that it's been generously given to us and it's been given to us to expand his kingdom and to expand his glory. And even though this parable uh, is kind of about money, it's also about time. It's about making sure that we redeem the time immediately to be productive. And since we don't know how much time we're going to have, so I don't know if I'm going to be here next week, um, we, we begin now. And since, again, we don't know how much time we have, I could be here several years, we begin with the notion that we will, by God's grace, persevere. So we set ourselves up not to fry ourselves in the first second, but to set ourselves up to be ready to endure for as long as God has placed us here. And again, it's because he deserves it. And we want to remember that we are simply uh, living in a manner that's consistent with our calling. We're walking in that way. We, uh, uh, as we consider, okay, what's the difference between too much and too little, we remember again that uh, hard work isn't condemnation, that conviction isn't judgment, and that discipline is something that we should expect 
from our loving Father and that we should respond to in obedience. And when we're considering our image that we had at the beginning of this large jar that we'll call our life, and the big rocks, we, we think that the, the big rocks are those things that are productive for God's kingdom. Those are those things that have eternal value that every believer is called to. But they also include those things that God has called you specifically to. And when we are pursuing putting those things in place, then that's time well spent. Now, one of the ways that we can, we can look at this is we can change this picture of faithfulness and make it into something where we're just a frantic mess. So we say, okay, well, there's all this good that we can do, and, and we're called to be faithful stewards, and we've got to keep this up until we die. That can get pretty ugly. But that misses the fact that what we really should be focusing on, again, is what are the important things? Making sure that those get done. If some of the little things get done, great, praise God. But our focus isn't on getting all of the little things done, all the medium-sized things done at all. It's on making sure that those things that God, by virtue of the roles that he's given us, by virtue of the responsibilities that he's given us, those things are consistently met. And we also need to know that in the picture of the the parable that we just read, we didn't see the master willy-nilly tossing money all over the place. There wasn't a notion that the master felt like he had to give money to everyone. In fact, we see that he takes it away. When he sees that this servant is unprofitable, he takes the money from that servant. And we need to look at the same way. We don't need to keep funding with our time everything that we have going and we have going on. We need to remember to find and focus on those things that are truly important, and those things that are truly beneficial. And again, another thing we can say is, okay, well, if I'm working hard, then it's got to be good. But that's not even correct. Because just because I'm working hard doesn't mean I'm productive. Uh, the the, the uh, servant, he buried a talent. He might have big, dug a really big hole. He could have built a, a vault and stuck the talent in there, but that's not productive. It doesn't matter how much he sweat, that's not productive. Stephen Covey has another great story that I'm going to butcher, but it's cool anyway. Uh, it's about this crew that is going into a jungle, and their responsibility is to clear a path in this jungle. And so they are well-managed, so everyone's rested. Everyone gets their breaks on time. They have really great equipment, sharp machetes. Um, they're taking turns. They have really high-quality strokes. They're, they're, they're killing it. Their leader climbs up into one of the trees, looks around for a little while, and says, Hey, guys. And they look up and say, What? Wrong jungle. So these guys are down there. They're doing a great job, but they're in the wrong jungle. They're going the wrong direction. And so sometimes we can get so stuck into the fact that we're really busy, that we're working really hard, that we forget or don't even notice that we're going in the wrong direction. And sometimes we can, we can make that hard work the idol. That's the thing that we're focusing on. And our response to the guy in the tree is, yeah, but we're making good time. So we want to make sure that we don't equate hard work even with being productive. Another way that we can skew that is if we're just working hard, but we're we're maybe not working very smart. So if someone says, hey, okay, go put a screw in that wall, and I've got a hammer and a plier, I might be able to do it. And then two hours later, with a lot of pain and maybe a real big hole in the wall, the screw's driven. Or I could have a screwdriver. I could go over and, and screw the, in the screwdriver. Or I could have a power screwdriver. So even though I worked harder to do the first thing, 
I was probably less productive than if I had looked at how I'm doing things, looked at kind of all the processes I'm dealing with, and, and, and considered that, is there a better way that I can do these things? Now, one of the things that happens, again, in life, as we consider, okay, am I too busy, am I whatever, is this notion of lazy busy by a lazy busy cycle by Tim Chalice. So he wrote a book called Do More Better. And we all know what laziness is. Laziness is when you sit there and you don't do anything. And that's different than recreation because you're actually recreating until you recreate and stop doing anything important. But essentially, laziness, you're not taking care of the important things. Busyness, we, we know that from what we do pretty much every day. So sometimes we can relax so much that things pile up on us. And then we go into this frantic effort to get everything caught up, and we work hard, and we, maybe we work ourselves sick, and we do all these things until we caught, get caught up enough to convince ourselves that we can lay down again. And this cycle goes on and on and on. So we, we, we rest between these hectic times and then, and, and then other rest cycles. So these are things that we want to avoid if we are looking at the long term, if we are looking to be productive throughout the whole of our life. So I'm going to be teaching you a class starting on Friday that will go over some of the tools that I believe will help combat some of these things. And the class is called Integrated Time Management, and the whole point of the class is to help believers uh, be productive. And the only way that we can be productive is if we have integrity. So productivity requires integrity. Integrity it can be considered uh, strong moral principles, and it can be considered uh, being undivided. So when we're looking about at time management with an eye on integrity, um, that can mean a couple of things. So the first thing, the first piece, is do what you say. It's pretty simple. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you commit to something, keep it. Psalm 15 describes to us an upright man, and he says this is one who, who makes a commitment and keeps it even to his hurt. And we say, well, that, that seems pretty hard, but just try keeping a commitment even when something better comes up. Just, just start there. But the first piece is, is doing what you say. Second is doing what's important. So if I have a phenomenal schedule, and I'm like a machine, and I'm going through my schedule, and I'm killing it every day, I'm doing exactly what I say on my schedule, but I'm not living with my wife in an understanding way, if I'm not spending time raising my children, if I'm not getting time in the Word, if I'm not doing all these things that I would say are important, then that's not demonstrating integrity. So we need to have those ability as well. And then the final piece is looking at our life as though we have one life. So it's very easy to compartmentalize our lives. We have our work life, we have our home life, we have our recreation life, we have our church life. We have all these things that we break up into these little parts, and we try to manage them independently. But we have only one life. We have a divine, sovereign God who controls all of those pieces and has callings on us in all of those places. So when we're considering this, we want to consider what a commitment in one area what impact that has on another one. We know that every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to many, many other things. And that's fine. We just want to be considerate that when we are doing that, we will have an impact on that. And so this will help me ask the question, uh, how does my staying up late at night impact my ability to have quiet time in the morning? How does it impact my ability to be rested and get to work on time? We see that this decision that was made at home in the moment can affect 
everything that we do for the next day. So we just need to consider that. And even though we're looking at it from the negative side, that it can have a negative impact, we can also start to look for places where it can have a positive impact. We can ask questions like, what can I do to serve at church that would be a blessing to my home? And so these are the kinds of things that come from the notion that we have one life. We're one believer in all those aspects. I'm a father 24 hours a day. I am a deacon 24 hours a day. I am a husband 24 hours a day. All of those things are ongoing. This is just one life. And we can also start to learn from that. We can say, okay, since my work life isn't separated from my home life in the sense that God can't cross those boundaries, I can look to see, is my boss at work treating me the way I treat someone at home? And we can ask ourselves and look for those times where God is showing us a log in our own eye that we see as a speck in someone else's eye in another genre, in another venue. And so again, all of these things help us as we consider how we can be godly stewards of our lives. And these are kind of some of the things that we'll dig into when we're looking at the tools in this coming week. So if you're interested in that class, again, it's called Integrated Time Management, and you can sign up out there. And that's where we'll dig into the nuts and bolts of how we can do these things kind of day in and day out, week in, week out. So with that, are there any questions or any thoughts that anyone has? Except, except from Lisa? No. <laughs> there is no child care this time, uh, and it starts at 7 p.m. Seven weeks and then another follow-up week. Yes. Oh. It does. Oh, good question, because she asked it. Anything else? Well, good. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the reminder that it's all yours, Lord, that we don't have anything that we haven't been given. Would you give us grace to go through this week seeing those places where perhaps we are doing unprofitable things? Perhaps we are spending too much time on, on things that we want versus things that we need to be doing. Lord, may we, with zeal and great joy, work heartily as unto you and do everything for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.